Hello, and welcome back to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. Welcome to episode 36, one that we call Imposters. If you live in Winnipeg, you may have noticed that Winnipeg is an imposter city. Just ask the architects and designers who created Canada's pavilion at this year's Venice Biennale of Architecture. Why is that? Because of Brad Pitt's The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, or Jennifer Lopez's Shall We Dance, or Philip Seymour Hoffman's Capote, or Jennifer Tilly's Cult of Chucky. All were shot here in Winnipeg, pretending to be somewhere else. Canada's entry in Venice this year was called Imposter Cities. The Biennale ended in late November. I'm joined now by four people who helped to create the Canadian Pavilion. David Theodore was the curator. Hello, David Theodore. Hello. Jennifer Thorogood was the project designer. Hello, Jennifer Thorogood. Hello. Joel Friesen and Cameron Cummings were both researchers and designers. Hello, Cameron. Hello, Joel. Hello, Terry. Or should I say, hello, all you imposters? Yeah, how do you know that I'm me? That's, that's kind of strange. So many films are shot in all parts of Canada, the Hollywood of the North, some people call it. What is the link between the four films shot here that I mentioned and Canada's exhibit in Venice called Imposter Cities? David, perhaps you could answer that for us. Well, Imposter Cities is about that. How do Canadian cities double as other cities in the world in film? And Winnipeg is one of the best places in the world with the most examples. I think everybody in Winnipeg has this experience of going to the bar or something and sitting beside Woody Harrelson or Liam Neeson or something because the city is used so often. I particularly like the Hallmark films, which you skipped over in the introduction. There's lots of those as well. We just were really, really intrigued by this way that um, something, a place so specific as Winnipeg could happily fill in for other places. Well, it's interesting too, because the alleged settings of these films, like the Jesse James film, is set in Missouri, but it was shot, among other places, in the Exchange District in Winnipeg. I remember going down to watch the shoot. Jennifer Lopez, Shall We Dance, is set in Chicago. It was also shot in the Exchange District, and they even constructed a version of the L to make it even more authentically about Chicago. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's Capote, set in Kansas, shot here. And Jennifer Tilly's Cult of Chucky was shot here as well, but set also in Chicago. What's up with this? Like all films shot in Canada, a combination tax breaks, phenomenal crews, our ability for our cities to play other cities. As Jennifer said, there's a number of reasons why Winnipeg in particular is uh, home to lots of filmmaking. You can bring a film crew there. They have good hotels. They have great food. You can take them out to eat. And there's real expertise. So if you make a film in Winnipeg, the film is as good a quality as anywhere you can make in the world. It's really important to say that it's about filmmaking quality. And our, our video editor is also a Winnipeg person, John Gerdebecki. There's talent there. There's a thriving industry of people and there's a thriving hosting industry of uh, all the supports that you need to make it. That the buildings can play Chicago is part of it, but it's more that the people in Winnipeg know how to make it look like it was filmed in Chicago. It's not just that they happen to resemble each other. They're very talented people who can make uh, the Exchange District look like Missouri. But Winnipeg is because 
there's been this effort to have a, a thriving film industry there. It's not just because the buildings look like Chicago. The industry last year in Manitoba was worth $250 million. So it has become a very robust industry. I want you to talk a little bit more, David, about deciding to explore and showcase the links in Venice between film and architecture. The basic idea was just that, imposter cities, which are why are Canada's cities so good at doubling for elsewhere? And we just thought there would be some movies, but we ended up with thousands and thousands of possibilities to choose from across Canada. Halifax has an industry, Montreal and Toronto, of course, and also Vancouver. It just seemed strange that these places could stand in for another. How can Arthur Erickson's incredible architecture in downtown Vancouver play North Korea? It just seemed both funny, you know, ha ha ha. The Chucky movie is quite funny if you haven't seen it and you recognize the Winnipeg and Joel was especially happy to have that one included. In the end, it was an embarrassment of riches. We had to choose which ones we liked. And a lot of that choosing was for considerations of exactly how did they transform it or not transform it. Somebody running down the side of Toronto City Hall seems a very unusual view of whether that's a good building or not. You know, is this building good for running down when you're a superhero is a very different kind of question than architects normally ask about buildings. We went through thousands and thousands of clips looking for the ones that somehow made sense and that would make some sense going together. A good idea at the beginning, I think we were all very happy when we came up with a title for this idea that we were working with and then just had fun uh, really collaborating together to get choose which ones. We did, uh, um, we did spend many hours scrubbing through many different films. There's so many movies now that people ask if I've seen them and I have scrubbed them, but I've never seen them, but I've scrubbed through, I think, more movies now that I've even seen in my whole life. The richer examples, I think, were the instances where the same place was used multiple times, because that's, that's really when you start to see how different filmmakers are interpreting a space or a building. You get to see many different ways that this building is shown. What would be um, some examples of those, Joel? Simon Fraser University, Robson Square in Vancouver, as David said, the Lakeview Diner in Toronto. What's special about those buildings that allow them to be so versatile? I don't know if anybody would say there's anything special about the Lakeview Diner necessarily architecturally, but uh, for me, I, as I did this, I was also trying to answer that question for myself. I was trying to figure it's, out what, what it is about these spaces that have a certain utility that can be used in different ways. Jennifer, if I could turn to you as the project designer, you played a significant role in designing with the use of technology in the pavilion. Green screen tech, chroma key, rotoscoped panoramic projections, and cell phone QR codes. What do those things have to do with the pavilion in Venice? It's been a difficult few years for everybody involved and for our project uh, in particular, we had to, had to jump through some hoops to get it to happen in Venice. And so kind of became more of a hybrid project where it, it existed in sight in Venice and then also existed online. To get this kind of experience where we can kind of connect the virtual with the physical, we brought in some, uh, as you mentioned, the QR code connected to Instagram. So we brought in this uh, magical moment where the physical experience of the pavilion turns into a virtual experience and it's kind of connected basically to the world or to anyone who has Instagram through this app and through the connection from other people using the app, we've had 
over 100,000 people see our project who may or may not have been in Venice. If you were in Venice and you were using the QR code and your phone, what would you be seeing on your phone? Well, on the phone, it changed throughout the course of the exhibition. What we decided to do is to replace the Canada Pavilion in Venice with scenes from movies mixed with kind of physical aspects of the actual place, mixed with a little bit of fantasy. We worked with the artist Alison Moore to create these scenes, and we based it on a journey across Canada. So we started at West Coast and we ended on East Coast. As uh, Joel mentioned, we started with SFU because it was one of the heavy hitters in our project. So if you arrived in Venice, you had a phone, you got a QR code, point your phone at the QR code, you would see SFU blow up and then a giant spider would walk over. What would that giant spider do? What we wanted to do is kind of combine elements of the film version of a building with the kind of real version of the building. We added elements like weather, and we added a noise to it as well. So the giant spider came from one of the films. We noticed as we were doing research into all these films that blowing up a building seemed to be one of the favorite things to do in a film. So we wanted to kind of give this experience where situated in a real spot, but have an experience that you would never get in a real spot. It's really easy to show you when you're there and it's complicated to explain so uh, imagine you're just walking through the Biennale and you're coming into the kind of in the end in this spot that's nestled, um, you know, Biennale grounds are the old public gardens of Venice. And then there's um, German pavilion and French pavilion and British pavilion. And you look and you see this thing that looks like a, a building under construction. And you kind of look at your map and you say, I thought the Canada pavilion was going to be there. And then you realize that it's carefully wrapped in green screen material. So you walk up to it and like, is it open? <laughs> is it closed? What's going on? And you notice that there's a QR code. So you take your phone and you look at the QR code and there you are standing and looking at what looks to be a closed wrapped pavilion. But when you hold your phone up to it, you suddenly see the giant spider climbing over SFU in the middle of Venice. It's really fun. You can watch people using it and they kind of start dancing or pretend like it's, it's a really fun thing. It's just, it's really hard to explain and really easy to show you. Um, and that's the thing. Uh, Cameron did a lot of work trying to work with the tech company about how that would work. Alison Moore did the rotoscoping. Joel did a lot of testing of what scenes would look good on our wrapped pavilion. But the whole thing in the end kind of relies on a fiction, uh, of a fiction, of a fiction. It's really a rabbit hole, uh, really easy to experience, but it's like trying to explain a joke a bit. It's just complicated, and but you get it right away if you were there. So Cameron, could people actually enter the pavilion? Say yes, Cameron. <laughs> yes, yes. They, um, in, in a way, yes, in a way, no. From the beginning, the main icon of the project was the Canadian pavilion in Venice wrapped in chroma key material. And I think that that was a powerful move in the film industry. What does that green symbolize and connecting that to how we feel about Canadian architecture and Canadian buildings more broadly. It kind of lent itself well to a Venice Biennale during a, a pandemic to open it up to the global audience. But it was something that was important to us from the beginning of how can we signify this idea of architectural anonymity in Venice. So Joel, if a person approached the pavilion in the Giardini, 
they would see the green screen, but was there a door anywhere that would let people into the physical building? Say yes, Joel. Uh, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Okay, so the answer is yes. So Cameron, you've been to Venice, right? Uh, I've been to Venice, yes. And so yes. is there a way to enter the Canadian pavilion there? Well, I think that the pavilion is, it lives in the Giardini and it lives online. It lives on Instagram. So it's kind of something that maybe evades the answer that you're looking for, I think, in a, in a little bit of a kind of clever tongue-in-cheek way. It, it's an idea that, that we were interested in from the beginning. How much of the design, uh, Jennifer, was related to uh, the COVID setting of the Biennale this year? Not much. We had the idea from the beginning that we wanted to approach the exhibition and kind of stages, kind of based it on how people move through the Giardini or move through the Biennale in general, because there's so much to see. We kind of have like the, the quick kind of flyby stage. The You have a little more time to explore stage. And then we have like, if you want a research stage. So we kind of kept those stages in our project, but the pandemic kind of shifted what stage was more important than other stages. So the kind of flyby became a very, very important aspect to the BNL that originally was more of a kind of signifier. That kind of first stage, it took on another meaning in a way, I guess. The way that it works in Canada, there's a call right now for the next Biennale, and the theme of the Biennale is not known. So we had a lot of these ideas developed long before the either the theme of the Biennale or COVID were there. And that included um, this kind of imposturing where we were, had a fiction about what we were doing as well as the actual thing we were doing. And we also, from the beginning, thought that we would have some kind of online something <laughs> that would be open to people who didn't physically travel to Venice. So over the years, the Biennale has got a lot of criticism for being um, kind of tourists overrunning Venice, you know, a kind of star-studded opening, and then nobody cares about the actual exhibitions and those kind of things. So we, from the beginning, really thought that whatever we do, we, we would have something online at the end that would during the course of the Biennale, you could visit in some sense our pavilion without actually going inside through the front door. Because we just thought that was a part of what filmmaking was. That's what you can do with the screen, right? You can see something on screen that you could never go and visit. So we wanted to do that. It's just as Jennifer is explaining, once the pandemic hit, that became more important to the project than it was at the beginning. In the inside of the pavilion, originally we had collaborated with a couple of sound artists with this idea that we would have a, Joel, correct me, 15 channel ambisonic sound system that would play a, a sound thing uh, that would match with a four screen projection that you would kind of move through. So it was really multi-sensorial and a dynamic thing. And we have uh, a fiction of that online, let's say. I mean, that's what we spend a lot of time on is making that work in person. But since, as you've guessed, the door doesn't open for the public, that is only available as a fiction online like a movie is. So, Joel, what part of the construction of the sensory experience that David just described were you involved in creating? Well, I was part of the design team for the physical exhibition with everyone else. And it was quite a considered design for this exhibition, nine foot high projections that you would really place you in the space alongside these clips of architecture and a library and then the, the chroma key installation as well. So 
that all came before we knew that we wouldn't be able to actually install it. But uh, as David said, it did make its way back into the project in an imposter form later on, which you can see if you visit the website. In what way did imposter cities connect with the overall theme of the Biennale, which was how do we live together? We had our ideas pretty much developed before the theme of the was announced. When the pandemic hit, we just kind of naturally fit. Everybody was suddenly on screen. And ours was about how being on screen together connects people. If everybody in the world watches the X-Men or something, there's a kind of way that there's a shared global community through these films on screen. Suddenly, when the pandemic hit, everybody was on screen and it just seemed to make sense. Yes, we live together on screen together somehow. This is a, a natural kind of fit. We didn't plan it that way. But we were one of the pavilions where it just seemed to naturally make sense, uh, the questions about togetherness. What does it mean to be together? I mean, I always had this image of the imposter cities of people flying on the airplane. And, you know, you're on the airplane and you can see like 10 films on the back seats of everybody else. So you're not really paying attention to your own. Those 10 films could all be in Canada. Like it's just likely that you're actually on an airplane and you're seeing images of Canada on the back seats of the airplane. And there's a way that Canadian architecture, actually that's how most people see it. Like way more people have seen the Lakeview Diner or Simon Fraser University in films than have ever gone there to see it. This is how you understand and see architecture. So that's part of what COVID made us realize. A lot of what we actually think is architecture is something we've seen on screen. I can talk about X-Men to just about anybody on the planet. They know what I'm talking about. And I can see, yeah, do you remember when Mystique flies through the window and there's Paris? And they say yes. And you say, well, that's actually Montreal. A lot of people have been writing about imposter cities and Canadian Architect Magazine asked when they wrote about it, as we grow our own cities, we can start to question the homogenization of our built environment? Should all our places look the same? Should homes or offices? Why do our cities look so much like other cities? For me, it's something that my thinking of it has shifted from the beginning. And I think now I might say that it's more of a trick. It's all a trick more than it is Canadian architecture being necessarily specific. I think it's the generic character of Canadian architecture that lends itself so nicely. This act of taking a, a building like Simon Fraser University, the Arthur Erickson building there, or any of kind of the most iconic buildings in Canada that you say, how could you possibly make that a generic building? But see, it happens all the time on film. These buildings are just typecast. The film industry in Canada has had a funny way of making not iconic these buildings. They're just general icons. They're not icons of Canadian architecture. They're not icons of Arthur Erickson's celebrated body of work. They're just a futuristic evil lair now. There's an interesting relationship between what architecture lends to cinema and what cinema kind of in return does to the architecture that we uh, live in. One of the buildings that is most filmed, one of our imposter buildings, uh, one that we, we found multiple clips of being used is an old power station in Toronto called the Hearn Building. Almost any car chase you've seen in the, in the last 50 years has been filmed in the Horn building. I'm exaggerating, but it's because it was abandoned and people knew how to film it. It wasn't because it was generic architecture. It is a kind of living film set that people could use over and over and over again. R.C. Harris uh, Water Treatment Plant, which is another Jennifer favorite. Yeah, it's in Toronto and it's a water treatment plant, but it 
likes to play insane asylums or evil castles. Prisons. Prisons, yeah. Yeah, and it's just a, a very nice piece of art deco camouflaging a water treatment plant. But somehow in, in filmmakers' minds, it becomes this incredible symbol of um, oppression and so on. <laughs> it's just this nice <laughs> building in the beaches in Toronto. Like, why is it changing to this building? Cameron did a, a series of interviews across Canada with film industry people. And I think of them, David Cronenberg, most clearly objected to our idea that imposter cities was a bad thing. He thought the ability of a city to play these different things or a building was a good thing in the same way that a good actor, Meryl Streep or something can play a whole bunch of different places. It's good that you can have this mild-mannered building, the R.C. Harris water plant, play these evil places. That, that's just a good thing for a building to be able to do rather than rendering it generic or homogenous or no thing. I mean, it's a, they're good actors, so why wouldn't we celebrate that? Why would we say, oh, no, they're generic? Just to clarify, when I use the word generic, I, I didn't mean it in a pejorative sense. I meant it in a, in a way that they are wonderful actors and they Montrealers know when there's a building that's shot, that's in the plateau and it's supposed to be Brooklyn. As insiders, we know that things are not quite what they seem on screen. And uh, so I think also that word generic is is touchy because it, it maybe implies that there's kind of no personality in these buildings when in fact, they all of course have personality. But I think that's what's so interesting about imposter cities and about these clips and about the exhibition as a whole is that it reframes how we interpret architecture and how we what we value about it. Even Montreal's buildings that have big personalities can be completely undone by like two inches of the Eiffel Tower in the background. Fly a couple of Smurfs over the top of it and suddenly <laughs> you're in, in Smurfland. Even though everybody knows it's Bon Secours Market, it suddenly looks like where the Smurfs are flying home. It's, it's the magic of movies. But you folks talked to Guy Madden, the noted Winnipeg filmmaker, who, like in one of his earlier films called Careful, he set it in the Swiss Alps, shot it all in Winnipeg. And then My Winnipeg, which is a film all about Winnipeg, but full of uh, fantasy that Guy came up with. So he takes a very different approach to representing Winnipeg and not representing Winnipeg. One of the best stories, I think, was about a movie that Guy shot. And it normally goes the one way where you fake Hollywood as Toronto or Montreal, but Guy Madden actually needed some shots and the actress he was working with was unable to fly back to Winnipeg to shoot. So they actually set Hollywood as Winnipeg. So I think that that points to a kind of, it's not as clear as, you know, one is always the imposter necessarily. And I think that just a matter of framing and movie tricks, movie magic. Guy Madden is also intense and a bit crazy. One of the things he was really clear about was kind of growing up, there was no Winnipeg on screen like there is Paris or New York. He just felt that as a kind of deep emptiness. You know, why can't my city be on the screen as well? Even the title, My Winnipeg, is a kind of way to um, elbow all those other films out of the way and put Winnipeg in this kind of film universe where there is an actual Winnipeg. In all of the history of cinema, there was no Winnipeg until Guy Madden kind of muscled his way in there. So that's a really ambitious thing to do as a filmmaker. As Cameron was saying, it's a bit strange. Like you take the point of view that where you actually are makes a difference to film somehow. There's another anecdote from Adam McGoyan in one of his films that was set in Toronto. 
they filmed um, a, an opera going scene and <laughs> they filmed it at, at Osgood Hall rather than the, the opera, which was across the street, essentially. And everybody said, well, you know, that's wrong. He, you didn't get the opera house right. And he said, what are you talking about? It's a movie. Like, how could you possibly... <laughs> just a kind of confusion so it's really strange how the the buildings do or do not they live in our world as kind of fictions things that we imagine uh, goes on inside a building that we've never gone in like Toronto City Hall I don't know anyone who's ever been on the 15th floor of Toronto City Hall or something like that but we see it every day it's part of our imagination the way these buildings take up our imaginations also in movies in quite a different way and Guy Madden, he really, really zeroed in on, on how that double fiction works. Uh, seemed to him to be really important in, in making his movies that they had something uh, Winnipeg about them. Uh, but that thing that was about Winnipeg was actually a fiction. So Another reflection on that discussion is what he calls the mythologizing power of movies. Yeah, I think that it's something that we lack, I guess, a little bit in Canada, that there's not a lot of stories about Canadian cities that are told all over the world, as there are stories about cities. A lot of that has to do with the fact that Canadian cities don't often play themselves. I think that's part of the power of my Winnipeg is that it, you know, the amount of people who you might meet in London or Moscow who know what Winnipeg is, but it's a really distorted view. It's a mythologized view. As David was saying, I think that's a, a kind of far more ordinary architectural view than you might think. There are lots of reasons why Canada's buildings look like buildings elsewhere. For example, I'm at McGill University right now, and we have a building that looks like a Palladian building, building by Palladio. So if you come into the main campus, right ahead of you is a Palladian building. So in Maxwell Smart, the movie, he drives his car right through the front doors of that building. And that building can be in lots of places because there's lots of Palladian architecture in many places in the world. That doesn't make Palladio in any sense homogenous and it doesn't diminish the quality of that architecture because they look similar to other Palladian buildings in Washington or Moscow or Los Angeles. It's a critique, but it's, it's not a critique that says buildings that look similar from different places are bad. The critique is more about the questions that goes back to the Massey Report. Uh, what is a Canadian architecture? What is a Canadian film industry? What makes a Canadian building Canadian in some kind of way? So the critique we're offering is to move beyond that worry about authenticity and Canadianness and to think of some other ways that we can see architecture by looking at films. More people experience Canadian architecture, have an understanding of what our Canadian streets are like or cities by watching movies than they do by actually going to PEI or Halifax or Vancouver. So we should pay attention to the way that people actually experience and understand buildings rather than imagining that it's through some Canadianness in some particular geographic place. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on architects to fit in, right? That's what we say, oh, that building looks out of place. So if it fits in, it's going to look like somebody else. And then we get mad that they look the same. It's, it's Architects can't win for losing in this equation. I usually watch films without the sound on. And one of the things you can kind of see is it's supposed to be in Texas. And you're, you're looking and you can see the light and the, and the vegetation and the... the and you're just like, that's not Texas. No, that's not Vermont. That's Kamloops. And sure enough, the credits go by and it's filmed in Kamloops. 
the, the idea that the architecture is just the style it looks like rather than its setting and the weather and the climate and all that kind of stuff. What's kind of fun about the imposter buildings is just how radically they can change by just a couple of cues. We looked at Scarborough College, very popular brutalist building. For some reason, the brutalist buildings are very popular in films. And when we were trying to figure out, well, how do we show that we have, I think, 14 different film clips of it being used differently each time? Well, one of the things was in the film clips, in order to make it differently, they just say, you know, New York Police Department. Suddenly it would change from being in North Toronto to being in New York just by putting in the text. That was just some of the very robust conversation on the Prairie Design Lab podcast from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. You heard from four of the people involved in creating the Canadian pavilion called Imposter Cities at the 2021 Architecture Biennale in Venice and online at impostorcities.com. David Theodore, formerly of Winnipeg, is now the director of the Peter Guo Hua Fu School of Architecture at McGill University. Jennifer Thorogood was the project designer in Venice and is a partner in TBA in Montreal and has a Master's of Architecture from McGill. Cameron Cummings has a Bachelor of Environmental Design from the University of Manitoba and a Master's of Architecture from McGill. And Joel Friesen of Winnipeg has a Master's in Architecture from McGill and works these days at At Large Architecture in Winnipeg. They all had a lot more to say, and if you'd like to hear the whole thing beyond what you just heard on UMFM 101.5, you can listen to the longer version of this episode on Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. Special thanks today, as always, to Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly of the Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. See you next week on prairie design lab it's kind of exciting it, it just gives so much more freedom to what architects can think of what their building is than to say oh it looks like some other therefore bad no put the exact same building somewhere else and it will change completely and the films allow us to see how that process works you know, in a very clear way i think what's revealing about all of that is we get a glimpse into how other people see these buildings it's not how we typically see them as architects but but how they're interpreted by other people you can dream something into them and that's what what the filmmakers seem to be very good at doing i've read that the scaffolding and the green screen might go on a national tour for those of us who couldn't get to venice or were interested in seeing it on a larger scale than just on our phone how likely is that david we have interest, so just looking for some funding. If the funding is there, then I would say it's more than likely. From the very beginning, we, we knew we were going to do this um, symbol of filmmaking in the middle of the Giardini. And when we're making the initial images of uh, how that might look, there was always this feeling, well, that in itself would be great to have back here. It just looks really good and um, kind of mysterious. The, the pavilion itself is a kind of funky building, which we could talk about another time, maybe. So the, the, this kind of wrap around it was also a very intriguing object. First part of that was about funding. And then with the pandemic, there's also been a kind of backlog of exhibitions where lots of people didn't get to exhibit. So we thought that has to be overcome too. We, we have to kind of take our turn. I think it would be really great in Canada to see it. Some of the things we did because we were in Venice, the geometry of the design is very specific to the pavilion for the way that the four screen installation works. 
there's this fairly elaborate soundtrack that would have to be site specific, let me put it like that. Uh, and all of that would be fun to work out in a Canadian place. You'd have the kind of ghost of the geometry of the pavilion in the wrap. And then how do we put the actual screens inside of it as well would be really fun, I think. How do you judge the impact of imposter cities? One thing that really hit me about seeing imposter cities and seeing people interact with it, they walk up to a building and then they end by just looking at their phone. So there's a a bunch of people standing in front of your building just looking at their phone. And it was this odd kind of twist where we turn this physical thing into a digital virtual experience. This kind of physical experience turned into a virtual experience so quickly that people just forgot it was a, they were standing in front of a building. Mm. That, that was really, really kind of eye-opening. One of the things we did when selecting the clips and, and editing them together, there was a sort of decoupling of the, the architectural film from the plot of the film. So we kind of take these pieces out of the film and, and sort of decontextualize them and run them together. The idea when you went into this pavilion was that you'd be surrounded on all sides by these images of architecture and film. And it's a very strange experience watching these films totally divorced from their plot and narrative because it really centers what is usually background. It offered a chance to to see these buildings and to see films in a completely different way. And now as I watch films, I'm sometimes distracted by trying to guess where these places are what these buildings are and having been to some of the places in the films that disconnect between filmic space and real space becomes very obvious so the impact of imposter cities for me i think would be this ability to see architecture and film isolated and presented in a way where you have an encounter with architecture in a very unique and unusual manner i think one of my favorite things about the design of the, the exhibition has been being able to see engagement on Instagram. You know, when people post something, we can see it. We can see who's seeing the pavilion and there's a really exciting relationship, I think, that I've personally felt with the people who have been able to visit Venice or, you know, friends who visit, they send me selfies and I love receiving those a lot. The impact for me that's been the most resonant is connected to what Jen was saying about your phone in front of this building and To me, that says that the experience of architecture and the experience of architecture on a screen, those are sort of the same thing. That's an idea that this exhibition has uncovered for me. And I think it's an idea that a lot of architects would maybe reject or feel that it maybe besmirches the significance of architecture or spatial experience, especially right now with a lot of kind of new work being centered around architecture as an image because of the way that we experience Instagram and TikTok and also the the value of those kind of social networks for architectural practice. David, for you, how do you judge the impact? I think Imposter City's impact has been quite broad and deep and different. So the sheer engagement numbers for the project have been off the charts, I think, compared to other previous pavilions for the Biennale. Talking with the Canada Council, they've more traction than any other exhibition that they've worked on. Working with the Instagram platform is perfect for for our project, that we were now over 100,000 people engaged into the project. 
So there's that kind of public impact that I think is clear and, and really fun to be a part of. And then the personal impact would be our collaboration. So I, I just give the example that for the Vernissage, the opening, which we were not allowed to do in the pavilion in Venice, we had kind of had another design phase where we had to design the Vernissage online. And I really learned a lot in that because Jennifer and Thomas Balaban, who were directing the project, was a tremendously fun, exciting way to have a Vernissage. Maybe even too good. Some people thought that was the actual project. This kind of online room, uh, party room that they created for us to go and, and have the ambassador and so on. A lot of work. But just the value of that, working with people who took the job of architects seriously and knew what they were doing. So if you think of the Canada Council, let's say, as the client, we had a very satisfied client because they took the time to find out what the Canada Council needed and the National Gallery and the people who work in the pavilion and all of us who collaborated with them seriously. I'm in academia. It's really kind of everyone for themselves in academia. And this was really that kind of way that we try to teach students in school about what an architect's responsibility to the project and to the client is. And it was quite amazing to work as part of a team where that was actually valued um, so deeply. I think you can see the effect of that seriousness in the high engagement numbers. There's more people attended this Biennale in Italy than ever before. Plus the reach over social media has just been huge. And then for me personally, it was just uh, really changed my view on a whole bunch of things about collaboration and how architects do their work and um, this kind of expertise that you can tap into if you ask nicely. Uh, it was very, um, very fun. What would be the impact of imposter cities in architecture schools if a student is listening to this and saying, what's this mean to me? This idea that you can actually look at films and see architecture there, not just see how architecture is portrayed, but you can have an actual architectural experience watching, you know, Liam Neeson uh, drive through Winnipeg. You, you, that's an actual architectural experience. It's not just a film in which you can see architecture. There's something to be understood, examined. So we have students doing that, but not directly because of us, but I think that the thing is there. And then that other thing, we've moved into a, an age of instant access, instant social media and our project. But this way that the project has a life uh, online, uh, that's part of what architects need to be doing and um, thinking about how that works together. I think through this process, meeting so many production designers, which is kind of the architect of the on-screen world, I think that for architecture students listening to the podcast, I, I think there's a, you know, this this industry that we talked about earlier in places like Winnipeg and Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver, it's huge. And I think that it shows that there's really, really massively valuable skills coming out of an architecture program that are useful in designing buildings and sets for movies and sets for, for theater. And that's something that for me, I, I wasn't really conscious of before this exhibition. I think it's something that is a really important idea of the versatility of, of a design education. We just heard from four of the people involved in creating the Canadian pavilion called Imposter Cities at the 2021 Architecture Biennale in Venice and online at impostercities.com. 
David Theodore, formerly of Winnipeg, was the pavilion curator and is the director of the Peter Guo Ha Fu School of Architecture at McGill University. Jennifer Thorgood was the project designer in Venice and is a partner of TBA in Montreal and has a master's in architecture from McGill. Cameron Cummings has a Bachelor of Environmental Design from the University of Manitoba and a master's degree from McGill. Joel Friesen of Winnipeg has a master's in architecture from McGill as well and works these days with at-large architecture in Winnipeg. They were both researchers and designers on imposter cities. You can catch Prairie Design Lab on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. For past episodes, check out our website, prairiedesignlab.com. You can also catch us on the radio on Wednesday mornings at 11.30 on UMFM 101.5 FM. Special thanks today, as always, to Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly of the Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. See you next week on Prairie Design Lab. <laughs>